And I think part of the, the challenge facing us in the West uh, is that we are, are, have experienced and are experiencing a loss of meaning and bigger purpose to our lives, individually and, and generally as well. Uh, our, 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 the latest movement of our secular society is founded on principles and the importance of doubt and of questioning things and not trusting authority and what that has led to is a wholesale just abandonment that there is a big meaning and a big purpose that all of our lives fit into and that is causing us problems socially emotionally individually it's cool it's interesting there was a, a book out recently by a man named Steven Pinker called Enlightenment Now. He's making the case that the world has never been better than it is now. And uh, materially, that's true. We're, you're living a, in an age in a part of the world where people are living longer, are healthier, have uh, got more possessions. Than any other time in his, human history, you are in the richest top 3% of people on the planet, the top healthiest percentage of people on the planet. But you scratch underneath the surface, and although people are materially well-off, there is a crisis of um, comfort and contentment and satisfaction in life. And I think the reason for that is because we are, we are meaning-making people. We want to believe, we need to believe that our lives mean more than just simply getting a stable job, having the occasional trips to Ikea, and then, if you're lucky, some regular travel and some exciting experiences before you die. We want to believe there's something more than that. And every year, as a people, we go through a month-long process of creating meaning for ourselves in our run-up to Christmas. We sing songs, we prepare a turkey, we invite friends, we make plans, and finally, we make promises to change ourselves for the better. We're trying to squeeze us, our lives into something bigger than just ourselves. Every four years, we go through a similar process with the World Cup. We sing songs, we get our hopes up, our aspirations and dreams in the hope that our lives might mean something, that we can tell our kids, I was alive when England won the World Cup. You were. <laughs> well, I'm here this morning to tell you that your life means something. And that in Jesus you have a purpose, you have a meaning, you have a destiny to fulfill and a destiny so full in fat that it ought to leave you foaming at the mouth and passed out on the sofa in satisfaction. We're in a teaching series of the church that we call Blueprint, where we're talking about God's plan for the people of God, the church, who we're meant to be, what he's called us to be. And there's over a hundred different metaphors or images of what the blueprint of the church could look like from the Bible. And what we've wanted to do for just doing it for 13 weeks is gather us together because we're all from different walks of life, different countries. I think there's over 12 different countries represented in just our small little community. Over 12 different, different countries, different life experience, different church experience. And I'm wanting us to gather around this blueprint of the church and say this, this is what we're trying to build. Help us. And judge us by who we are. Judge us by where we're going and what we're aiming for. And just as we sing familiar songs to prepare ourselves for Christmas or for the World Cup for stories of meaning, so did the ancient Jews, God's people in the Old Testament. In fact, if you open the, the book of Psalms, I'm not telling you to, but if, if you were to, um, but between Psalms 120 and Psalms 134, before the, the song begins, it has this word, a song of ascent. 
It's a little book squeezed within the book of Psalms called the Songs of Ascent. These were songs that were sung by the people of God as they went to Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the highest city in the nation. It was a nation that held a lot of place, uh, prominence in the, the imaginations of the Jewish people. And every year at various points for festivals and communities, people would travel to Jerusalem and they would sing these songs. These songs of ascent to prepare themselves, to remind themselves of what they're doing. They were heading towards the city that held a special place in their hearts, special place in their history. And the reason the city held a special place because of what it was because of what the city contained. Because at the heart of the city was the temple. The temple was the place where they believed God dwelt. It was the place where heaven touched earth, where people were drawn into God's loving arms. It was a symbol of the supernatural breaking into the natural. It was a reminder that this mundane life isn't all there is. There's a bigger meaning. There's a bigger purpose. See, to visit the temple for an ancient Jew was to blow off life's cobwebs, was to marvel with childlike innocence again at the fact that God has not left us alone. God has made himself available to us. I don't think it's possible to overstate the importance of the temple for a Jewish person's life and worship. And here's why this matters. It matters because now, in Jesus, the Bible says that the place where God dwells on the earth, the temple, is the church. It's you. When we gather together, we are the temple. Not only does that make your individual life very significant, it makes what we do here each week and as part of this community incredibly significant. It means that what we're doing is of the utmost importance for our lives and also for the world. When we gather, God is here every time, without exception. It's impossible for a church to gather and for God not to be there every time. Sometimes people say, wow, that, you know, that Sunday at church, that worship time was amazing. God was there. What they mean is, I was aware God was there because he's always here. There are times when we're very aware of his presence and we want more of that. But today I'd like to look at what the church is for, what the blueprint of the church is by looking at this metaphor, this blueprint of the temple. What does it mean to be the temple? And to do that, I'm going to look at a story in, in the Gospels that's repeated in, I think, three of the Gospels, where Jesus basically becomes irate and incensed at the hypocrisy and irreverent attitudes that he finds in the temple, the physical temple of his day. Jesus grew up going to the temple regularly. It wasn't a, just a spontaneous outburst. It was a premeditated fit of rage at what was going on in the temple. So if you want to follow along, we're going to be reading from Mark's Gospel and chapter 11. It'll also appear behind me. So Mark chapter 11, this is what it says. In verse 11, it says, Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, they come to Bethany. Jesus curses the fig tree for not bearing fruit as a picture of what he's about to do in the temple. And then in verse 15, it says this, They came to Jerusalem, that's Jesus and his friends, his disciples, and he entered the temple 
And he began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. Jesus creates a massive scene. This is not meek and mild-mannered Jesus. Jesus is not polite in this moment. He's furious. He's kicking stuff over. He's creating a, a, a real mess of activity. I mean, some of his disciples, among them was a man named Simon the Zealot, which basically meant he was a, a revolutionary who, who believed the way forward was a, a violent and physical way forward. You can imagine Jesus' disciples like Simon going, this is the best day of my life, and getting his sword out and overturning the tables, going, finally, the revolution is here. And that, in many ways, that's what Jesus is doing. He's saying, the revolution is here. Get rid of all this stuff. Can you imagine? And it says, he didn't allow anybody to enter. Jesus yelling at people, stay there, get out. He's furious. And this is what he says. In fact, I like what Mark puts. And he says, he would not allow anyone to carry anything to the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, which is just amusing, because we think of teaching and saying to them as being you know, very just calm and controlled. It would have been better to say perhaps, and he was shouting at them, maybe. Is it not written, Jesus said, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you've made it a den of robbers. <coughs> Bless you. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. Astonished at this man who would dare to threaten the establishment in such a, a violent and public way. That's what Jesus did. You see in Jesus' vision of what the temple was meant to be, what we're called to be as a church. Three things that we're going to look at together today. Firstly, the church belongs to God and is for God. Jesus said, it is my house. Secondly, the church is the place that God dwells. His house is where he lives. And thirdly, the church is a community of prayer for all nations. So let's start with this. The church belongs to God and is for God. Therefore, among the people of God, holiness is expected. A reverence for God is expected. An orderliness, a care that shows how important God is to us is expected for God's people. Holy, the word holy just means set apart for God, devoted to God. Now any, any parent knows that things that are important need to be restated time and time again. I don't know how many times in a parent's life they say things like, wash your hands, or be careful, or don't touch that, or I don't know, clean your teeth. That's true, not just of earthly parents, but of God. He repeats things time and time again in the Bible, repeats important things that he wants his people to grasp. Jumping back into the Old Testament, in the book of Leviticus, everybody's favorite nighttime read, uh, it says in chapter 11, verse 44, God's given instructions to his people on how to worship, how to live. And it says this, I am the Lord your God, consecrate yourselves therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. You shall not defile yourselves with any swarming thing that crawls on the ground. Then verse 45, for I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy as I am holy. And then in chapter 19 of Leviticus, he says this, Speak to all the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. And he goes on to talk to them about the importance of keeping the Sabbath and looking after their mother and father and honoring your elders as older people in the community. And then chapter 20, verse 7, again, Moses says, Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, 
for I am the Lord your God. Be holy, for I am holy. Just repeated over and over again. I mean, that was true of the Old Testament. Things different in the New Testament. When the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says to his followers, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Oh, okay. That's, that's the bar, is it? And then in uh, a letter called 1 Peter, where Jesus' fo- Jesus's follower Peter is writing a letter to the churches, he says to them, wherever it's gone, here it is. He writes to them, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also should be holy in all your conduct. Since it's written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And then Paul, also picking up on the same thing, writes to a church in in Greece, in Thessalonica, and he says to them, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you keep yourself from sexual immorality, that each one of you knows how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passions of the lusts like the Gentiles do. For God has called us, not for impurity, but for holiness. We, we love the idea of, what's, of God's plan for our lives. We often wonder, what is God's plan for my life? And we've got it right here. Isn't that helpful? The Bible tells us, this is the will of God for your life. This is the plan of God for your life. Your sanctification, which is a word that means you're being made holy, being cleaned and set apart for God. Across a lifetime, God's will for you is holiness. But the church, in the way that we live and behave, we're not holy. It's one of those things where in Christ we've been given a holiness, but we're also told now live in holiness, like live devoted to God, worshipping Him. Throw off everything that hinders you and seek Him only. That's what the church is meant to be. But the church doesn't do that. We, are, we have sinful natures that we wage war against, that trip us up. And in, in one situation, the Apostle Paul writes to a church in, in Greece, in Corinth, that are far from perfect. In fact, one of their members has recently been to visit prostitutes. Um, and he writes to them. And I don't know what you would do if you learned that you know, a friend of yours or someone in the church maybe was visiting prostitutes or behaving in a very immoral way. You might just say, stop it. <laughs> you shouldn't do that. It's wrong. Several years ago, I had, I had this with a, a friend in the church in Eastbourne who actually was visiting prostitutes. And I can't remember exactly what I said, but I probably said, stop it. <laughs> you shouldn't be doing that. It's wrong. But Paul doesn't do that. He doesn't take that tactic. He doesn't say, stop it. It's against the rules. Stop disobeying the rules. In fact, in, instead, he says in 1 Corinthians 6, he says this. Listen, you're to flee sexual immorality. The reason for that is because every other sin a person commits is outside their body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. So he says, listen, stop doing it because it's bad for you. And then he says this, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Someone's misbehaving. Paul doesn't say, stop it, it's wrong. He says, don't you know who you are? You're the temple of God. In other words, he speaks destiny over them. He speaks identity. He speaks meaning into them. It's a good example for us. What do you do? How do you help a brother or sister or friend who's struggling? Stop it. 
And Paul says, listen, you're the temple of God. God lives in you. He loves you. He's close to you. He's got a plan and purpose for you. You're a son or daughter of the king. Stop drinking from puddles. Why would you do that? Perhaps a good example for us in the way we help each other. The different pressures that people face and will go on facing. So firstly, the church belongs to God and is for God. It's my house, Jesus says. Secondly, the church is where God dwells. It's where he lives. The Bible's story, the story of the human race, gets going and begins in chapter 3 when we fall from grace, we disobey God. The result of that is that we are banished or exiled, not just out of the garden, but we're exiled out of what the garden means, the presence of God. We're sent into the wilderness as a race. It's the source of all of our feelings of meaninglessness. Is really at its root is that we miss God. We're broken. And then the Old Testament story is basically a program of reconciliation where God visits these people who are broken and lost without his presence and he comes alongside them and makes promises to be with them. He takes a, man, a, a pagan worshipping man named Abraham and says, listen, I'm going to be your God and through you all the nations are going to be blessed. That's how this thing's going to get going. The story is traced through there. He appears to a man named Moses and says, listen, I'll be with you. I'm going to call you to go and set my people free. And then the people of Israelites are miraculously delivered and rescued from the land of Egypt where they were slaves. And they're taken, taken to the wilderness. Moses goes up a mountain to have a face-to-face conversation with God. He's given the law from God. And for all the time that he's up on this mountain, the people were gathered at the bottom. And there's just fire and storms and thunder and lightning and darkness around this mountain. People are terrified because they're aware a man is in the presence of God up a mountain. I heard this past week about a, a guy who was uh, in a national park in the States where there were mountains, and he was caught there during a, a thunder and lightning storm. And he said it was just carnage. People were terrified, fleeing for their lives. He said uh, people's phones were flicking on and off as the electrical currents that were hitting the ground nearby were so strong, it was affecting everything. It's just sheer terror. When God's presence comes, comes with power, comes with a revelation of who God is and what his glory is. It's the presence of God. And actually, in the book of Exodus, Moses understands or he vocalizes what it is that makes them significant as a people. See, the people of Israel, they weren't better than the nations around them. They weren't special because they were more moral than us. Uh, what made them special was this. He says in, in Exodus 33, verse 15 to 16, He said to God, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. How shall it be known that I found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us, so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? Moses says, What separates us is that we have the presence of God with us. That presence later gets contained within the temple so all the people could go. Marvel at the fact that God has come to us. But what about the New Testament? The things change? Gear? Is there a different emphasis? 
Well, the marvel of the New Testament is that God has become a man and is now walking among us. And on one occasion, Jesus is with his friends and they say to him, pointing to the temple, look at this temple, isn't it amazing? And Jesus says, you see this? He says, there's coming a day where not one stone will be left on top of another. It's being destroyed, it's being undone. He says, you know, pointing to the temple, he says, destroy this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. In other words, it's not as special or as significant as you might think anymore. How so? This place that's occupied a place of meaning and prominence in their psyche. What's happening? Well, Paul writes to a church in Turkey and he says in Ephesians 2, verse 19 to 22, he says, you're no longer strangers and aliens. You're no longer exiles. You're no longer those who've been banished from God. But you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You are being built together into a dwelling place for God by his Spirit. That's the purpose of the church is that we would be built together into a dwelling place for God by His Spirit, that the presence of God would be known among His people. Not in a building. You don't got to go travel and go on pilgrimages to different sacred parts of the planet, because it's here. It's among us. There's a need for us to see that. A need for us to love the vision of the church that's put in front of us. To marvel who or what this is when we gather gathered local churches are temples now last week I, I quoted some statistic from a survey that said people who've become Christians have given some reasons as to what led them to become Christians and the most significant one was they attended a church service other than Christmas or Easter just attended or weddings they just came on a Sunday and they were impacted by something that happened. Bringing people to the temple, to the gathered church, is significant. Not because we're slick and we've got things together. Not because there's a neat program. But because God is here. And God speaks. Through clumsy people like you and me, he decides to use it to bring about transformation in a person's life. Purple's life. <laughs> How do we approach Sundays, our gatherings? Do we sing psalms of ascent <laughs> in the week leading up to each Sunday? We'll start with Psalm 120 and we'll sing a song a day to remind us we're going to the temple, the place where God dwells. Now, we might not do that, but do we, do we come with expectation? Do we consider what we're doing? Or is it just, a, just enough effort just to get her in the first place? argue with our friends or wives leaving the house or wrestle the kids into the car and, and call it church, and call it worship. But I think there's a need for us to become ready to seek him before we get here. To say, God, on Sunday, please show yourself to us. I, if I'm honest, I hate coming to church and it feeling just routine. Going home, going, well, that was 
Well, we did it. Tick. Pretty uneventful. No one died. Oh, that's good. But no one's life was changed. We're coming to God each week. Those of you who have gifts, gifts of prophecy, those of you who've got gifts of exhortation and encouragement, where is it? Bring it. I'm serious. This is what we're here for. Seek God. What are you saying to us this week? Write it down. Come on Sunday and say, I think God might be saying this. Wouldn't it be amazing if, I had, if we had five or six people just saying, I think God might be saying this, and then we'd start to feel like some of the churches you read about in this book. I'd love to be in a church one day where you have to bring some level of calm down, everyone. Let one person speak and then another. Let's not all speak over the top of each other. That's what Paul has to do. He writes to a church and says, listen, everything needs to be done in order and decent because God's a God of order. Stop being so chaotic. I would love to have to say that to the church. <laughs> Instead, sometimes it feels like, come on, wake the dead. Raise ourselves to life. God, are you there? Come down. There's a picture in the Old Testament of the prophets of Baal trying to cool their God down from heaven, hitting themselves and you know, lashing themselves with whips and going, come down, Baal. And the prophet Elijah steps up and goes, is your God asleep? And then he just goes, watch this. God, come. And fire comes down and consumes this offering. We mustn't be satisfied with what we've got. I know many of you are not. Paul says, eagerly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. Eagerly desire. Hunger after, long for. There mustn't be anything casual about what we're doing. Again, Paul says, like, prophesy, yes, because we want you to speak the words of God. And the hope is, the plan is, that someone walks into your church and, and sees what's going on, walks into one of your meetings, sees what's going on, and falls down on their face and says, surely God is at work. And they get their lives turned around. It's only a handful of times I think I will have known that occurring. But we want that. That's the goal we're shooting for. And as a result, I mean, the songs that we're singing, they're meant to help us. But it's not like that's the event. I know John and the guys work hard to choose songs that are going to remind us of gospel truth. I often say to John, just remind us of the old story of the gospel. Just remind us what we're doing. Just remind us of what we've been rescued for and from and for. Sing songs that remind us of who God is and that he's at work among us. And then we'll let the Holy Spirit take over. And the Holy Spirit is really just looking for willing hearts to say, I'll partner with you, Holy Spirit. I'll share what you put on my heart. I'll pray for that person. I'll go after that. I know some of us find singing hard. We feel very self-conscious when we sing. I would just want to urge you to push through on that. Because singing unlocks you emotionally and it makes you aware a lot more of what's going on around you in the spirit. Oh, I haven't got a nice voice. People might not hear you. Might not, might not like what they hear. People might, I'll be embarrassed. Possibly. <laughs> you probably haven't got a nice voice. If you had a great voice, we'd get you up the front. Say, come on, help us. Because none of us have got, you know, apart from a handful. <laughs> then we go, oh, listen to their voices. I'll sit down and just listen. This is love. What a great show. It's not what we're here for. <laughs> the reality is the person next to you is probably equally concerned about what you might be thinking of them. 
It used to be that in society in general, people sung a lot. And so singing in church was just one place where people sung among all the other places that they sung, including schools and maybe together as a community in different centres. Now, we reserve our singing for football matches or nightclubs where we're so drunk and the music's so loud no one can hear us and we're just free to let ourselves go, let it all hang out, it doesn't matter. But singing unlocks you emotionally. It's impossible to sing and for your emotions to stay flat. That's what it does. We don't wait for our emotions to wake up and then go, oh, I'm going to join in. We sing and our emotions and the reality of God's presence, we become aware of it. It's the old thing, isn't it? That your, your body leads you emotionally, not the other way around. So the Psalms say, wave your hands, clap your hands, sing for joy, shout. Because if you do that, an awareness of God's presence, emotionally you wake up to the reality that God's at work among you. What we do as Brits is we go, I will wait for my emotions to feel very, very stirred. And when I feel an eruption of joy, I may do this. And if it's amazing, I'll do this. And if I lived during the charismatic renewal movement, I might do this. I don't know what that was. <laughs> like a Mexican wave. There was a, there was a subtle shift that went on in churches a couple of years ago where um, the worship leader stopped being called the worship leader and they became the lead worshipper. Did you notice the shift? <laughs> From worship leader to lead worshipper. And that's an important, it's a subtle but important shift. Because the point is, they're not leading us. And we'll go, off over to you, mate. Good luck. Try and wake us up because I had a late night last night. I'm just, to be honest, I'll stand up as long as I can and I'll sit down and doze during the sermon. And we'll call it church as long as I've got coffee to wake me up, that's fine. No, he's now not the the worship leader, but the lead worshiper. We're all joining him. Come on, show us who Jesus is and then we'll join you. Because it's Jesus that we love and what he's done for us. That's what we get excited about. Right, enough on that one. So, the church is the place that belongs to God. It's also the place where God lives and we mustn't be satisfied with anything other than just a a greater awareness of God's presence. And thirdly, the church is is a community of prayer for all nations. In the Old Testament, the presence of God was confined to Israel, the people, and it had a kind of don't-come-close dynamic to it. In fact, in the ancient temple, they had a, a sign outside it that had written on it, whoever is caught beyond this point will have himself to blame for his death that ensues. Like, cheery <laughs> imagine coming to church like you step beyond that front line of chairs and you'll have yourself to blame for your own death now have fun worship God look happy in fact I, d- I did this thing this is unrelated maybe I did this thing recently I was with um, a, a group of gap year students and we were having a time of worship and in the room next door it was a, it was a leisure centre and there was someone running a boot camp and he was yelling at all these people to work hard and to do press-ups and to sprint and to run. And I thought, that's funny. Like, how, what, what kind of low self-esteem do we have that we need to pay money to have someone shout at us to do exercise? My wife is one of those people. She won't do exercise unless there's peer pressure and shouting and possible shaming involved. But anyway, so what we did is then we thought, oh, let's try that in the church. And so we had a time of worship and I was shouting, sing louder, raise your hands, jump, come on, wake up. It was a bit of fun, but there's some truth in it too, isn't there? It's who we're worshipping. We're the house of prayer for all nations. Jesus' rage is that this temple was supposed to be for everyone. It was supposed to be, welcome, come and see God. To pray, to call on God's name. In that sense, the church, we're meant to be those who pray. Who call on God to act in the world. 
on behalf of the people who need it. God, come. We stand in the gap. In, his, um, in the weeks leading up to Justin Welby, the Archbishop of Canterbury's inauguration, he, he toured the country, visiting the different churches and cathedrals, making speeches and praying with people. And wherever he stopped, he began each day with a hearty breakfast and he spoke to the local bishops about what his priorities as the archbishop were going to be. His first one, he said, the primary objective of my tenure as archbishop is that I would see, we would see a renewal of prayer in the church. He would say this to them, we're not just the rotary club with a pointy roof. That's why prayer must come first. Without prayer, there will be no renewal of the church. And without a renewal of the church, there is very little hope for the world. In the fourth century, a man named John Chrysostom wrote a hymn. And he acknowledged prayer as being the root, the fountain, and the mother of a thousand blessings. He went on to say, prayer has subdued the strength of fire it has bridled the rage of lions. It has extinguished wars, expelled demons, burst the chains of death, rescued cities from destruction, stayed the sun in its course, and arrested the progress of the thunderbolt. It's tempting to write that off as just rhetoric. But all of those examples come from the Bible. That's what prayer does. The church is a community of people commit themselves to understanding prayer's power and potency. The fiery German monk from the 16th century, Martin Luther, he said, prayer is a constant violent action of the spirit. Thus we must remember that he who prays is fighting against the devil and the flesh. The best thing we can do, therefore, is to put our fists together and pray. The best thing we can do is put our fists together and pray. When trouble comes, we pray. When opportunities come, we pray. When we're aware of injustice, we pray. When there's sickness around us, we pray. When we're healthy, we pray. We don't pray instead of act. There's an old Russian proverb that says, pray for help but continue to row for the shore. We're, we do both. We pray and act. But the point is the church is a people of God's presence that calls on God for more power. Our plan, my plan is that when we buy the building in the bottom of town, uh, firstly in September we're going to start the, the academic year with just a month of prayer together. It's 30 years since the church, since King's Church, not the church, that's 2000 something years. Um, but we know we like to feel like important, don't we? So like 30 years since we began. God's like, no, hang on a minute. <laughs> I've been going for some time. Anyway, 30 years since kings began. And so we're going to have 30, to celebrate 30 years, we're going to have 30 days of prayer. And we're going to try to reform ourselves as a community of prayer. And my plan is that in the new building, I don't need to take a room as an office. So the room upstairs that we were going to use as an office, we'll turn it into a prayer room where the hope is that Every day, and as often as we can in the night as well, we'll get individuals and pairs praying for things, calling out to God for things. We'll set up appointments for encountering God. That's what we're here for. It's what we offer, the presence of God and the gospel. And ultimately, it's what the world needs. Let me end by telling the story of uh, a lady named Deb Welch. Uh, in 2008, 
the accountant, Deb Welch, gave up her job in order to start a prayer ministry in her town of Arizona. 34 days after starting that initiative, the, the Super Bowl in America was due to touch down and, and be launched in, and come into her town. In the run-up to that, one of her prayer partners had this horrible premonition. One night in a dream, she saw the stadium filled with blood. And so, taking the prophetic premonition seriously, Deb called a group of people together before the Super Bowl to walk the stadium to pray for protection that any crisis might be averted. On the day of the game, she, nervous, she sat and watched nervously as the game unfolded, joined something like 100 million other Americans to watch the biggest sporting event in their country. Well, the contest passed uneventfully. And Deb breathed a sigh of relief. In fact, she felt a little bit foolish for needlessly dispatching a well-meaning team of intercessors to pray. But then, after the event, the news came. The news broke. Media outlets began reporting that behind the scenes of the Super Bowl, a bloody massacre had been averted. You see, a disturbed 35-year-old man named Kurt Havelock had mailed a series of threats to media outlets the day before the game. He emailed the LA Times, the New York Times, and others, and they'd all received chilling messages from Havelock pledging for a swift and bloody revenge to slay their children. On the day of the Super Bowl, Havelock drove himself to the stadium, armed with a semi-automatic assault rifle and 200 rounds of ammunition. But Havelock had no way of knowing that he was parking just yards from where a group of Christians had gathered to pray against bloodshed. Armed to the teeth and intending to kill as many people as possible, the would-be mass murderer unexpectedly experienced something that he calls a change of heart. That was how he described it in court. He broke down in tears and phoned his father saying, I've done something terribly wrong. He handed himself into the police without a shot being fired. It's the temple of God on the earth people of the presence of God who understand that we're to be a house of prayer for all nations. It's the place where God lives. It's what we're called to be. It's how we're called to live. I defy you to find a bigger and more meaningful thing to give your life for, to wrap your life up in. Ultimately, of course, that's what Jesus did. Gave his life for it. He said, tear down this physical temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. And he did. He offered himself the temple of God as a sacrifice for the sins of the world. They killed him on the cross outside the city. And then the church was, back, was begun and birthed. The presence of God broke out on the earth several days later in the coming of the Holy Spirit. We're to be the temple of the living God church what we're called to be a place that belongs to God a place that knows and is familiar with the presence of God and a place that prays for the nations to come to God let's pray together and respond this morning by breaking bread and celebrating Jesus' death on a cross for our sin